0: He's a faithful God. We are celebrating His faithfulness today. The last verse says, Summer or winter, springtime and harvest, sun, moon, and stars in their courses above, join with all nature in manifold witness to thy great faithfulness, mercy, and love. And that's true about our God, and it's true about all things in nature. Join in manifold witness to the faithfulness of God. So we are celebrating the faithfulness of God today in this moment of worship gathered here in this election season knowing that God alone never changes, right? He is the faithful one. He is the one who is the same yesterday and today and forever. And our trust is in him. We are solidly anchored in the God who made us and loved us through his son, Jesus, saved us and brought us into his family. We are Jesus people gathered here in this room this morning. And we are prepared for a hopeful future in the Christ of Calvary. So whatever happens on November 8th, we are celebrating the goodness and greatness of God who transcends every transient organization, institution on earth. He is the God who spans all of eternity. And we are anchored in Him and standing in Him. And in the early service, someone confessed to me, they said, I have been so anxious about this election, I cannot sleep. I'm so upset day after day after day. And uh, she said, You know, I'm. I'm so disturbed by what I hear and what I see and what our country is experiencing. And I want us to address today the anxiety of heart. For all the anxious of heart, for all the fearful, for all those who cannot sleep because of the upcoming election, there is a passage for you and there is a prayer for you. And I want you to bring faith now to your process in, as a voter, as a citizen. I want you to be full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit. And I'm going to suggest to you three prayers that I want you to pray. And they're embedded in the text I'm about to read. But I've been talking about these places for faith. i talked about culture. We're going to talk about family. We're going to talk about the ends of the earth as a place for faith, and I want you to experience over the next nine days faith in your heart, in your walk, in your talk as you deal with this electoral process as a citizen of this great country. And uh, for our text today, I'm going to Colossians chapter 4, so if you have your Bibles, you can flip on over there, politics, a place for faith. Verse 2 of Colossians chapter 4. Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. And pray for us too, that God may open a door, of, door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should Be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. And so, I'm going to give you three prayers. And the first one is a prayer that I want you to pray before you go in to vote, all right? In fact, I want you to pray this prayer over the next nine days. I want you to pray it with all the familiar prayers that you have. Like if you say, now I lay me down to sleep before you go to sleep, I want you to say, now I lay me down to sleep and I am praying for this election process and for the candidates and for our country. And if you pray... God is great, God is good, I want you to pray. God is great, God is good, and God bless us as a country as we have this election, and keep us in the palm of your hand, and Lord, give us your peace, okay? So I want you to pray that, and I hope that you will. I hope that you'll address your anxiety and your fear and the things that may be troubling you about this election, that you'll entrust those to God, because every time you pray, you're acknowledging that God is the one who rules it all. He rules over your heart. So... The prayer of devotion, devote yourselves to prayer. We call ourselves Jesus people. We want to be Jesus people. We are followers of Jesus. We want that to be the genuine description of our life, not some logo that we don't live up to, but we're seeking every day to live up to it. Prayer is part of that. Jesus prayed, He prayed often. He prayed as a matter of habit. How can we say we are following Jesus if we're not praying? Indeed, if we're not praying about that which troubles us, which is disturbing to us, if we're not going to God in prayer about that which gives us anxiety, how can we say we're following Jesus? Jesus prayed about the things that troubled him, the things that disturbed him, the pain that came into his life. He prayed about those around him who were hurting. He prayed over and over again, and it was his custom to pray, the Bible says. As his custom went, uh, was, he went to a place of prayer. So I want you to develop this as part of your habit over the next nine days, that when you go to God in prayer, you pray about the election. You just automatically just put it on the table. And if you're having trouble with a habit of prayer, I'm recommending to you life-hacking spiritual exercises a little book written by Joe Fontenot, who is back in the back. Hello, Joe. Wave your hand there, brother. There he is. You can find it on the Internet, and you can get a hard copy as well. I've read through it, and it's a short book, and it tells you what you need to do with your prayers and with your Bible reading. If you're not getting it done on a daily basis and you can't seem to work it into your schedule, well, then you find places that are already anchors for you in your routine, and you connect Prayer to that existing routine, okay? And if you will do that to the existing routine of your life, you connect prayer. Then when you get in the car or when you pick up that coffee mug, you'll remember, okay, this is a time for me to pray. Or maybe it's your break at school or at work in the middle of the day. Or maybe it's when you're about to go to bed. Whatever the routine is, you connect prayer to that routine, And you will be following Jesus as you are devoting yourselves to prayer. Now, before you go into the voting booth, before you go to early voting or whatever, I want you to pray a prayer of devotion unto God, committing your life unto Him, and uh, and saying, Lord, this is me, and I am giving myself to you as I do this. And there are two ways I want you to pray this prayer before you vote. I want you to be watchful. That's what he says here. Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful, and realize that as a citizen of this country, you are watching over the affairs of state with your vote. Lord, I'm being careful, I'm being vigilant, I'm being watchful, I'm seeking to do the right thing for my country and fellow citizens as I cast this vote. So we want to be devoted in prayer, being watchful, being vigilant, being citizens who understand the issues, who have studied who know what the constitutional amendments are about for instance and at least have an idea of what we're going to do when we do our voting be watchful and be thankful all right in your prayer before you go into vote you ought to be watchful and you ought to be thankful thankful for the opportunity you have as a citizen of this country to cast your vote are you thankful I hope you're not just angry resentful and bitter Anxious and afraid. I hope those aren't the adjectives of your heart. I hope not. Because then you'd be out of the will of God, wouldn't you? Because the scripture says, in everything, do what? Give thanks. Why? This is the will of God concerning you. This is the will of God concerning you. But we've got this momentous election. Well, you're supposed to be watchful and thankful. You need to have a thankful heart. If you can't vote with a thankful heart, something's out of sync in you. And listen, if you can't be thankful, it's possible you're going to miss the will of God when you pull that lever. You may not be voting in the Spirit when you pull that lever. you got to be watchful, but you also have to be thankful as a follower of Jesus, a grateful heart. I tell you what, it's very important. We're coming up on Thanksgiving. We need to be thankful. You say, I just don't know how to be thankful. Really? Really? you are the beneficiary of so many wonderful things that God has provided for you as a young person as an adult in this culture in this time in this place built on the heritage of our parents and grandparents and generations who have gone before enjoying the best health of any generation in the history of mankind as far as we know long lives that are productive and healthy I mean Economic blessings, we have so much to be grateful for. And if we can't be grateful, something's broken inside. We're not seeing the world the way it really is. We are not celebrating the sunsets and the summers and the falls and the winters. We're not enjoying all of nature's message to us that God is faithful. We need to be grateful, all right? So, you go into that voting booth and you say, Lord, be with me. I'm trying to be watchful. I take care of things here. And I'm trying to be grateful, God. I'm grateful for this opportunity and this moment. Pray this prayer of devotion. I'm fulfilling my duty as a citizen. I'm being watchful about our country and our democracy. And I'm very grateful for this opportunity that I have. All right? So there's the first prayer. Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. Now, there's another prayer I want you to pray, and it has to do with the chains. You, you saw the word chains, didn't you? The scripture says here, Pray for us, too, that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. I want you to craft a prayer for the chains. Sounds silly, doesn't it? But the word chains here is perhaps the most political word that Paul uses in this letter. He uses it twice. He uses it here when he says, for which I am in chains, and he uses it at the very end of the letter where he says, remember my chains. All right? And I suppose he meant, remember my chains. When you pray, when you think about me, when you go on to God on my behalf, remember my chains. He uses the word four times in the book of Philippians. He uses it in other places as well. This word, chains. Paul is actually enjoying the accommodations provided for him by the Roman government as he writes this letter. Yes, he's in jail, all right? Yes, he's got chains on his hands and his feet, perhaps. Literally, maybe he's chained to a soldier. When he says, remember my chains, maybe he lifts his hand up and shakes them a little. Have you ever heard that frightening sound of a chain gang coming into a courtroom? I've heard that. I was sitting in a courtroom waiting for the judge to start. When I hear, coming down the hallway, this cling, 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 I think, what in the world is that? And finally, they appeared at the door. And this row of prisoners clothed in their garb, their prison garb, walk in. They'd been clanging those chains on the hallway floor. They call them a chain gang it's a political word it's Paul's relationship to his government he is locked up he is in chains now the Apostle Paul is in chains because of the testimony of Jesus Christ and the witness of the gospel he went to Jerusalem to worship Some Jews saw him who knew he was a Christian. They caused a riot. There was a riot in Jerusalem. The Roman commander, not a Jew, arrested Paul. And after hearing the complaints about him from the Jews, he decided to have him flogged. It's a short word. It's a terrible process. Sometimes they beat these people and flogged them so badly they died from the beating. So he was about to have him flogged. And he had a centurion in charge of flogging him. And the man, I guess, was about ready to raise the whip and start lashing out at Paul when Paul says, Is it legal for you to flog a Roman citizen who has not been found guilty? I guess the centurion dropped dropped his flog, his uh, whip right then. And he went over to the commander and he says, Do you know this guy is a Roman citizen? And the commander walks over to the Apostle Paul and he says, are you a Roman citizen? And Paul says, yes. He was from the the city of Tarsus, which is in what is now Turkey. If you went up from Jerusalem a couple hundred miles, you'd get to Syria and Antioch. And if you went around the corner of the Mediterranean Sea a couple hundred miles, you'd get to Tarsus. And in 66 B.C., all the citizens of Tarsus became citizens of Rome. Paul says, yes, I am a Roman citizen. And the commander says, it cost me a lot of money to buy my citizenship. And Paul says, I was born a citizen. The old Bible says to buy this freedom. And Paul says, yes, but I was born free. He was born free. It's a moment. See, he had a a citizenship that he treasured like you have a citizenship you are a citizen of the United States of America most of you and it's a citizenship that is precious and treasured around the world many people would like to have the citizenship that you have it comes with many benefits and people treasure it around the world and Paul treasured that Roman citizenship and when he was about to be flogged and beat half to death he brought it up and they stopped the flogging And they went into a judicial process that included the governor and all that. And what Paul was saying to them is, look, I'm not going against the temple. I'm not breaking Jewish law. I'm not breaking Roman law. I'm not going against Caesar by trusting in Jesus. And everywhere he went, when they gave him an opportunity to speak, he said, I am following Jesus. I'm a follower of the way. I'm trusting him as Savior. That's not illegal. That's not breaking the law. It doesn't even break Jewish law. That's how he defended himself over and over again in this legal process. And eventually, they're about to turn him back over to the Jews, and he said, I'm appealing to Caesar. And he had that right as a citizen. That's why he's in chains. He appealed to Caesar. When the governor heard him in Caesarea Maritima, he wanted to let Paul go. And he told his confidants, he said, we would let this man go if he had not appealed unto Caesar. A man is in chains because he appealed unto Caesar and he entered into a judicial process that went all the way to their supreme court and he ended up in Rome as a prisoner. Now think about this. I am in chains for the gospel, but I was born free. When you pull the lever to vote for a senator, a congressman, a city councilman, you are voting for the person Who will forge your chains? They make the laws that govern the republic in which you live. These people make the laws, and when you vote for a governor, a president, or a mayor, you're voting for the person that applies those chains. They are the administrator, the executive of the laws that are created by the legislators. And these laws become chains on the hands and feet of people. The power of government is coercive. Now, the power of the church is persuasive. We are persuading men and women to trust in Jesus. And if you don't give your tithe, we're not coming after you, okay? We're not going to garnish your wages. We're not going to put you in jail. But if you don't pay your taxes, brother... They will garnish your wages and they will put you in jail. That's the power of government. The power of government is to coerce your behavior. So, when you vote for a legislator, you're voting for the person who makes the chains. Now, those chains are not only for individuals, they are also chains for government. Our founders said, All men are created equal they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. One of those rights listed in the Bill of Rights is religious liberty, freedom of conscience. And the Constitution put chains on the Congress. So the Congress shall make no law respecting the establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, they chained them down with the Constitution. We have limited government. The government was not deemed to be competent or responsible for what a man believed about God. And so, the Congress, the people who make the chains, were not ever to make a law that established religion by authority of government, or prohibited the free exercise thereof. And I stand before you today to say I am grateful for the religious liberty that we enjoy in our nation, which the Apostle Paul did not enjoy because he had chains on his hands and his feet, even as he wrote this letter. He was in jail. Why? Because he believed the wrong thing. Now let me mention just to you. Maybe you're somebody who wants to forge chains for people who have a different religious opinion than you do. And you're supposing those people need to be chained. That religion needs to be illegal. Let me just say, once you empower the government with the competence and responsibility to regulate religious belief and thought and the exercise of conscience... Once you have done that, you have gone beyond what the founder said the Congress should ever do, and it will come back to you. You think, no, I'm a majority. You really think you're a majority? You're not a majority. If you're a follower of Jesus, you really think a majority of the United States of America are followers of Jesus? I mean sincerely believe in Jesus as Savior, as the way, the truth, and the life. You see, if you lock somebody else up because of their religious conscience, one day you'll have chains on your hands and feet too. You don't want to go there. We want to continue to chain the Congress of the United States and say, Congress shall know, you shall make no law respecting the establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. And when you defend that for anybody, whoever they are, yes. And what I'm saying is precious to you, and it is as American as Chevrolet and apple pie, all right? These are the principles on which this country was founded. And we have threats to religious liberty from the right and from the left. But it is more important to us than our economic system or anything else. Because religious liberty allows me to stand up here this morning and freely proclaim that Jesus is Lord. And it allows us, hallelujah. It allows us to gather in this room and together express our religious conviction and to go out into this community and tell our neighbors and friends and go to the jails and the nursing homes and proclaim Jesus as Lord and invite people to trust Jesus as Lord. And that freedom we want to preserve at all cost. And to give that freedom to other people of other faiths is not to legitimize their faith or to say that it is truthful but it is to keep the chains that the Constitution put on the Congress in place so that we can continue the free proclamation of the gospel. Now, religious liberty does not just pertain to the free proclamation of the gospel. It also affirms the value of every human life, the dignity that every man has before God. The truth that every man must give his own answer to God. That the conscience must be free. And the government cannot give that answer. And the parents cannot give that answer. The priest cannot give that answer. The pastor cannot give that. Every individual is empowered through the image of God within them to give their own answer to God. And yes, I met a young person today who said I'm now giving a different answer than my father gave. I had to do it myself. And young people, you got to do it yourself, okay? You got to give your own answer to God. God doesn't have grandchildren, He has children. Amen? Amen. And everybody relates to Him themselves. And so we are pres- preserving this biblical understanding of the nature of man. And his relationship to God, when we insist on religious liberty as really the foundation of speech and the press and assembly and all the other liberties which we enjoy, this fundamental liberty, remember, Paul says, my chains, remember them. So when I go into that voting booth after I have voted, I've got a prayer for you for the chains. Father in heaven, I pray that you will use these chains to advance the gospel. That's what Paul prayed. Now, I'm just telling you, that's what he prayed. He had literal chains on him, forged by Caesar's people. And they held him from visiting the churches and doing many other things that he could have done. But he said, pray That I will have an open door for the gospel and that I'll be empowered to proclaim the word of God as I should, even though I'm in these chains. And so as we vote on constitutional amendments here in Louisiana, we are saying, Lord, use these chains somehow to advance the gospel. Help us to see the word of God go forth, even with these chains, even with these laws that we're making that regulate business and industry and the individual lives of people. God, use them for the gospel. So I commit my vote unto God for the legislator and the president. Knowing that they forge and they put on these chains. And I celebrate celebrate my freedom, which I have in Christ, as I vote. And there's one other prayer I want you to pray. It's the harvest prayer. The prayer for the harvest. I already told you, adopt a harvest view of the world, I don't know how you see the world, but I'd love for you to see it like Jesus taught us to see it, which is fields white unto harvest. Lift up your eyes, look. The fields are white unto harvest. That's how Jesus saw the world. That's how Paul saw the world. He wrote to Colossians and he said, "This powerful gospel is growing and bearing fruit all over the world." That's how he saw the world. I want us to rejoice that the gospel goes forth, even through our global impact offering, through thousands of missionaries who are preaching the gospel and teaching the good news in so many diverse cultures in the world. People groups are hearing today the word of God. Some of them have never heard it before, and they are trusting Jesus as Savior. This view of the world is the proper view for a follower of Jesus. We need to see the world is full of eyes, ready to see the love of God and full of ears, ready to hear of God's love, this good news which he has committed unto us. Now, in this election season, I want you to pray the harvest prayer because it changes your perspective on what it means, what politics is about and all of that see Paul says here be wise in the way that you treat outsiders there are people outside of faith in Christ so we need to be wise we want to have godly wisdom about how we treat these outsiders we need to make the most of every opportunity Now, what is that? Maximize every opportunity, every face-to-face encounter, every one-on-one in a coffee shop or in a boardroom, every time we're together with somebody. Maximizing that for what purpose? For the gospel, for Christ for the good news of God's love in that person's life. Make the most of every opportunity. So I'm having a meeting, but I am prepared and I am watching for the opportunities I'm going to have to share the good news with these people who are board members or students or colleagues of mine. I am on alert because this is how I see the world. I am watching the world from the harvest point of view making the most of every opportunity. And then Paul says, because he wants this to prevail, he wants this attitude to prevail in every follower of Jesus. Let your conversation be full of grace. Let your conversation be what? Full of grace. grace. Let your political conversation be Full of grace. Let your cultural conversation, let your daily conversation, let your teaching conversation and your professional conversation and your recreational conversation be full of grace. Now, grace is all about God's love. It's all about how he cares for us, how he has extended forgiveness unto us. If you're walking in grace, you know who you are. You are forgiven. You're a child of God. You've got the confidence that the Holy Spirit lives within you, so you are walking in grace. So here's what, here's what Paul wants. Here's what the Holy Spirit wants in you. He wants your conversation to be full, absolutely brimming full of grace. Kindness, gentleness, meekness, humility, forgiveness, full of grace. Even if you're talking to a Democrat or you're talking to a Republican and somebody who doesn't hold to your political view, you let, you let your conversation be full of grace. You want to follow Jesus in this, right? Right? You want to represent him well in this divided, contentious world in which we live. You want to be faithful to him right now in these nine days before the election. So let your conversation be full of not curses, not blasphemies, not heated rhetoric. Let it be full of grace, seasoned with salt. That's what it says. Okay, that's the comment on full of grace. It says, full of grace, comma, sort of parentheses, seasoned with salt. The old Bible said, seasoned as it were, with salt. So it's a metaphor back to full of grace. What am I going to do with this full of grace? What does that mean to me when I'm having my conversation? It's like I sprinkle some salt on my macaroni and cheese, okay? I just sprinkle a little bit on there so that every bite I take has got the salt in it necessary to make it really good. Now, you may be thinking, oh, that takes the teeth out of it. No, it just makes it taste better, right? You don't want to do what Graham did with his mac and cheese on Thursday. Graham's almost four. He wanted to put his own salt on, so he dumped it on the macaroni and cheese. Then he couldn't eat it because it had way too much salt on it, all right? So it really is the thing about you being sensitive to God about how you're going to share your political point of view. Uh, God's not asking you you got to have the same opinion as everybody else. This is not a thing about you got to change who you're going to vote for. This is a thing about how you relate to outsiders, how you talk about this to people in the world who need Jesus, who more than anything else they need to see his love in you. You let your conversation be full of grace, seasoned with salt, so you are distinctive in the conversation out there in this culture. You're talking like a Christian. You're talking like somebody who loves people. Your conversation is full of grace, seasoned as it were with salt, so that, see, if you will infuse grace into this discussion we're having, and as you participate, letting people know that the love of God is in you, and the patience and humility and forgiveness of God is just whirling inside of you, and it's part of your words and your vocabulary and your demeanor and your nonverbal communication, you are full of grace, seasoned with salt, then you will be able to properly answer everyone. Okay? You'll have the right answer. You'll be able to answer in a way that uplifts the Lord Jesus. Brothers and sisters, this too shall pass all right and when it's done this is the prayer this is the harvest prayer father in heaven help me faithfully live and proclaim the good news about Jesus to all who are still outsiders to faith in Christ so you've got a devotion prayer Lord help me be watchful And thankful as I vote you've got a chains prayer Lord use these chains to advance the gospel and you've got a harvest prayer Lord help me live with outsiders in such a way that they know you and can see you in me we know that no matter what the need of a human heart may be the greatest need is to know God's love and His forgiveness through Christ our Lord. There is no need greater than this in any human heart. And so the true answer for every life on the planet is found in Christ Jesus, that they may know Him, the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His suffering, being conformed to His very image. We are Jesus' people. This is how we bring faith to politics in this season of our life. Bow with me, please. Lord Jesus, we bow before you. Our heads are bowed before you because we are acknowledging you as Lord of all. Lord, over our words, every word we speak, every conversation, every venue, all of our deeds, God, you are Lord. And we acknowledge this with bowed heads. And Lord, we pray that you would use us in this season to exalt the Savior, to bring you glory, to point the way to the cross, to be people who see the world as the harvest field. Lord, that we might live out our citizenship with an eye on heaven. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.